Good morning, my name is Karen. I'll be reading our passage this morning, which comes from 1 Samuel, it's chapters 9 and 10. If you're using the black chair Bibles, there's some extra over there on the window to the kitchen. We'll be on page 239. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than everyone else. One day, the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, wandered off. Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. Saul and his servant went through the hill country of Ephraim and then through the region of Cilicia, but they didn't find them. They went through the region of Shalim, nothing. Then they went through the Benjaminite region, but still didn't find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come on, let's go back, or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Look, said the servant, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. Suppose we do go, Saul said to his servant. What do we take the man? The food from our packs is gone, and there's no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us which way we should go. Formerly in Israel, a man who was going to inquire of God would say, Come, let's go to the seer, for the prophet of today was formerly called a seer. Good, Saul replied to his servant. Come on, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they were climbing the hill to the city, they found some young woman coming out to draw water and asked, Is the seer here? The woman answered, Yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there's a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the guests can eat. Go up immediately, you can find him now. So they went up toward the city. Saul and his servant were entering the city when they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a young man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man I told you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. As for the donkeys that wandered away from you three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found. And who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? Saul responded, Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes, 
And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjamin tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? Samuel took Saul and his servant, brought them to the banquet hall, and gave them a place at the head of the thirty or so men who had been invited. Then Samuel said to the cook, Get the portion of meat that I gave you and told you to set aside. The cook picked up the thigh and what was attached to it and set it before Saul. Then Samuel said, Notice that the reserved piece is set before you. Eat it, because it was saved for you this solemn, for this solemn event at the time I said, I've invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Afterward, they went down from the high place to the city, and Samuel spoke to Saul on the roof. They got up early, and just before dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, and I'll send you on your way. Saul got up, and both he and Samuel went outside. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of you, ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I'll reveal the word of God to you. So the servant went on. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it out on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Today, when you leave me, you'll find two men at Rachel's grave at Zelzah in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys that you went looking for have been found, and now your father has stopped being concerned about the donkey and is worried about you, asking, what should I do about my son? You will proceed from there until you come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one bringing three goats, one bringing three loaves of bread, and one bringing a clay jar of wine. They will ask how you are and give you two loaves of bread, which we will accept from them. After that, you will come to Gibeah of God, where, the Philistine, where there are Philistine garrisons. When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. When Saul turned around to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met with him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man who was from there asked, And who is their father? As a result, is Saul also among the prophets? Became a popular saying. Then Saul finished prophesying and went to the high place. Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where did you go? To look for the donkeys, Saul answered. And when they saw they weren't th and when we saw they weren't there, we went to Samuel. Tell me, Saul's uncle asked, what did Samuel say to you? Saul told him, He assured us the donkeys had been found. However, Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mitzpah, 
and said to the Israelites, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, You must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite tribe was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, There he is, hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts had touched God had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, How can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You know, there's certain passages in the Bible that when you're doing your personal Bible reading, you get to them and you think to yourself, boy, I'm so glad I don't need to put together a sermon for that passage. (laughs) Here we are. So, 1 Samuel 9 and 10, I trust the Lord has something for us even in this obscure and strange passage. You know, uh, let's see how this sits on you. I think this is to be true. Maybe you would agree with me. We know that God is at work in the big things of life. Would you agree with that? You know, the, the bigger things in life, it's easier to see. Okay, God's moving. He's doing something here. Maybe I don't see everything, but God seems to be at work in the big things of life. But what about the small things? Okay. Most of our lives, maybe 90 plus percent is spent doing fairly boring and mundane things, right? I mean, what percentage of our lives do you think we spend doing the dishes or folding laundry or changing diapers or sending emails or going to the bathroom? How many minutes of my life have I wasted looking for the Roku control? It's easy for us, I think, to believe that God is at work on the front page stuff of life. It's easy for us to believe that God is doing something in the major crises, the major events of this world. But what about when I lose that remote control? And that leads me to not watch Netflix, which leads me to read a novel, which happens to remind me of my friend Paul in Boston, who I then send a text to. And then he responds, hey, thanks for checking in. Things are hard. Can you pray for me? Can God be at work in this? 
Or let's put it in the language of 1 Samuel. Can God be working when we lose our donkeys? You know, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a front-page crisis. Israel wants a king like the nations, and that was such a big deal, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. 1 Samuel 9 is barely an Instagram post, right? A man named Kish lost his donkeys. Great. Good for you. Who cares? So this big epic story of 1 Samuel suddenly, all of a sudden, slows down, really slows down. I mean, she was up here reading for like, you know, 12 minutes maybe, right? Really slows down, and all of a sudden, it starts to get boring and pretty mundane. Might God be working in all of this? And if so, what is he doing? We're going to see in our passage today that God works in the small things, he works in the big things, and he works in the hard things. And here's the main point. You'll see it in your uh, bulletin in the note page. Here's the main point in a sentence. God's providence may not always make sense to us, but we can learn to joyfully accept his goodness in it. Okay, I'll say it again. God's providence may not always make sense to us, but we can learn to joyfully accept his goodness in it. Now, what does that word providence mean? I'm going to be using it a lot this morning. Well, what I mean is that, that, that incredible, mysterious, sometimes unguessable way God rules this world and sustains his people. Providence is the acknowledgement that God carries his plans all the way to completion. And his plans include every detail of our lives. He works through us. He works around us. He works in spite of us. And yes, he works also because of us. This is what today's message is about. So we're going to be tracing God's hand as we encounter Saul and some donkeys as they come onto uh, the scene. I want you to notice at the bottom of your note page, there's some work cited. I needed extra help with this message, with this, these couple chapters. So you'll see, see that if you want to kind of read more or study more, those are some good places. I also consulted a friend of mine, Pastor Chuck Newkirk, whose teachings have been very helpful uh, for this passage in particular. So let's get going. The first thing we see I want to point out is God's providence in the small things. Looking at kind of that first scene or, or scenes, uh, verses 1 through 17 of chapter Nine. So finally, we get to meet this colossal character who is Saul. I mean, he's going to dominate the rest of this book. And notice how he's described by the narrator. He's a son of a prominent man, a wealthy man. He's impressive. He's handsome. He stood tall. Now remember, this is preached history. So there's a message that we're trying to figure out. And it's often, especially in narratives, it's often hidden in the details of the story. So this is the only place in Israel's history where height is commended. Every other time, it's talking about a foreigner, an enemy of God. Can you think of a tall enemy of God coming up, right, Goliath? So what's the point here? Well, Saul looked like a king like the nations. He came from good stock. He had a commanding presence. He was visibly impressive. This is the king Israel wanted. But is this the king Israel needed? That will be a question we're going to be asking for the next few chapters. So after the characters are introduced here, the story starts to unfold, and it starts out, notice, with a bunch of asses. There's no campaign for Saul, right? Uh, there's no indication that anyone is even remotely thinking about him as king. So what is he up to on this day that he wakes up and looks at his schedule? 
well, daddy's donkeys got lost again. And he's off to look for them. This was probably routine. It's happened before. Normal days pass, annoyingly mundane. And apparently Saul is not doing very well in the search, right? One of the many oddities of this story, this future king can't even track down some farm animals. It's strange. Brothers and sisters, we're going to wake up tomorrow morning. We're going to face a fairly ordinary day, likely. You may go through your entire Monday tomorrow and years from now never remember even one detail from it. Isn't that strange? You'll spend time doing a bunch of probably fairly insignificant tasks, making a forgettable meal, driving a forgettable car, reading a forgettable novel, searching for forgettable donkeys. But this story reminds us, I want you to hear this, this story reminds us nothing, nothing is happenstance. Do you remember Jesus' words? He said, not one sparrow falls to the earth apart from him. Friends, even the most minuscule detail of your life and mine is under God's providential rule and care. He governs all. He reigns over all. He presides over all. He orchestrates all. For Saul, as far as he knows, at, up to this point at least, nothing is out of the ordinary. This is a pretty normal day. But as the reader, as the story starts to unfold, the coincidences start to stack up, right? And they start to feel like they aren't just coincidences, like somebody is governing this whole situation. Let me point out four uh, coincidences in this story, in chapter 9 in particular. Saul is ready to go home. Uh, his servant says, hey, but there's a prophet here. Let's go consult him, okay? Number two, uh, wealthy Saul doesn't have a dime, but his servant has some silver to pay the prophet, okay? Uh, they meet up with some women at a well, who happen to know exactly where Samuel is. Okay, a little strange. And then right when they walk into the city, who do they meet? Samuel. He's, there's a lot of people around him, and he's this great prophet. He's a seer, and yet he makes time for these men. It's so strange, isn't it? But then in verses 15 through 17, the curtain kind of gets pulled back, and what is hidden is finally revealed. So let's read these verses, 15 through 17. Now, the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. Okay, well, there it is. We get to see a little bit of what's going on. Uh, in this story at this point, and, and, and what these so-called coincidences are really about. Now, you're, you'll recall with me, a couple Sundays ago, we talked about 1 Samuel chapter 8, and that's where Israel wanted a king like the nations. They wanted to fit in. They no longer wanted to be Israel. In fact, they were rejecting God as their king. And God said, okay, Samuel, let's give it to them, right? Let's give them this king so that they will learn through my disciplinary judgment. And it's like a, a parent that kids there, kicks their rebellious teenager out of the house, and it's the, the hundredth chance, right? And we've been warning you and warning you and warning you, and finally you have to do something so drastic sometimes. So when we start reading 1 Samuel chapter 9, we know a king is coming, but Saul doesn't know that. I mean, he's looking for donkeys. He's about to be given a kingdom. Friends, we don't always know what's going on in this life. We're trying to find the remote controller, but God's doing something completely different, right? God is always doing 10,000 things in our life, and we may be aware of four of them, right? 
And what we see, that, that little tiny fraction of what God is doing in our lives, it, it, it may not even make sense to us. But friends, our job isn't to make sense out of divine providence. Our job isn't to know the ins and outs of divine providence. Our job is simply to believe, to trust God in his providence, to trust that God is working out good things, good things in every circumstance, whether that's good, bad, or ugly. You know, we can trust the juicy promise of Romans 8, 28. Say it with me. All things work out for the good of those who are called and those who are according to his. That's right. So, you know, when it's a big thing, maybe it's job loss or financial instability or the death of a loved one or some global pandemic. I think over time, if you're a Christian, you eventually start to see God's goodness in those situations. Oh, there's some goodness, there's some goodness, right? Uh, but, but do you believe that same promise for the small things in life? All things means all things, right? So not just the big things in life, the little things as well. So I want to encourage you to trust this great truth that your God presides over the small details of your life. And his interest, if you're a Christian, his interest is to, to, to kind of insert and inject that small moment or those small moments with his goodness. Isn't that cool? And if God is over the small things, doesn't that give dignity and purpose to the lost donkeys in our lives? You know, nothing is outside the scope of God's purposes, even diapers and play and summer strolls and brushing your teeth and setting up vacation Bible school stuff in this you know, afternoon. Like all things, all of the things that we do, you can do all to the glory of God because all are within the scope of God's provision and care. I love what Zechariah 4.10 says. It's a great reminder. Friends, don't despise the day of the small thing. Zach Eswine says it this way. Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Is that true? And the reason that statement is true is because God cares about every detail in our lives. And those, those small, overlooked, mundane things God injects them with meaning and purpose and goodness. Do you believe that as you jump into your Monday morning? Before we move on, I want to point something out. We need to see again how Paul is, or Saul excuse me, is introduced in this story with donkeys. And we start to see the folly of Saul. Think about how David is introduced a few chapters later. There's another animal that's around David. you remember? It's a lion. And apparently he killed this lion with a donkey jawbone, right? But here you've got Saul, and what is he doing? He's looking for donkeys, and he can't find them. It's interesting. Just a little peek into the folly of this man. We're going to talk more about that later. Uh, the next thing we see is we're looking at this story and kind of tracing God's hand. We see God's providence in the big things. So put your eyes on verses 18 through chapter 10, verse 16. And so as the story starts to unfold, the big thing that God is doing comes into greater focus. And what is the big thing he's doing? He's choosing the king for Israel. He's establishing Saul as his king. And he's working slowly to bring him into kingship. And as we're reading the story, we've got to ask the question, why Saul? He seems a little odd. He seems a bit off, right? His servant seems to have more savviness and awareness than he does. But nevertheless, 
He is God's man for this job. God's going to give him the throne. So this is the big thing that God's doing in this story. He's setting up Saul to be a king. And look at the way God starts to bring this about. He's working subtly, inconspicuously. Notice the, the, the food portion given to Saul in verse 23. This was uh, the part of the meal that was preserved either for the priest or uh, the guest of honor. Can you imagine how confusing this must have been for Saul? Like he was just walking around trying to find some donkeys, and now he's sitting at the table and he's treated like a king. It's bizarre, right? It's really odd. But this meal, as we're looking at these details, it has another purpose I want to point out. Okay, It's reminiscent. Maybe you've, you've kind of kind of felt, okay, a pang of remembering or, or, or a memory when, you, we, uh, when Karen was reading through this. It's reminiscent of another meal, another biblical meal. Uh, and, and these meals, so this is Genesis chapter 24. Abraham's servant finds Rebekah, and before bringing Rebekah back to Isaac, there was this meal. And so these, these meals often in ancient times preceded a wedding. And so we got to ask the question, okay, so who is Saul marrying? We don't see like some, you know, young chick around. So what's going on here? Well, the answer is found as we consider other biblical texts, as other kings are becoming established for Israel, like David. When other kings are established for Israel, the Bible uses the language of husband. Saul would become Israel's husband, as would the other kings, like David. And Saul would, of course, prove to be a bad husband, very different than Jesus with his bride, the church, right? So we, we, the reader, are kind of drawn in. We're meant to recognize God is at work, even though Saul doesn't know yet. We're meant to see more. You know, there's zero coincidences in this story, friends. This isn't just another meal. There are no kind of arbitrary moves happening here. God is establishing Saul not only as Israel's king, but as Israel's husband's. I want you to look at something else, too. Look at the way Saul progresses in this chapter. He's continually being raised up in the sight of Israel. He goes up to the city, chapter 9, verse 11. He goes up to the high place to meet Sam. Uh, Samuel, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 14. I have a son named Sam, so that's going to come out sometimes. <laughs> he, he goes up to the head of the table at the feast, chapter 9, verse 22. He goes up to the roof of the house to sleep, chapter 9, verse 25. So Saul is ascending. The geography is really important. He started as a donkey far farmer in Kish. Now look where he is. The Bible creates this sort of ascending expectation for a king in other places, too. There's an echo of the song we sang, the second song we sang. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of a son of man who's coming through the clouds before the ancient of days to receive an everlasting kingdom. So here he is, he's, he's high, he's exalted, he's ascending through the clouds. And what Daniel sees from above, the disciples see from below, Luke chapter 24, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends through the clouds into heaven to be given the place of authority and kingship. Friends, Saul's going up is a miniature model of this ultimate ascension. God sets up Saul and causes him to ascend because that is exactly what God does with his kings. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. So what we see there is not only, not only how Saul's ascension kind of points us forward to think about the ascended king, Jesus, what we, are, what, what we are called to kind of think about or consider is where is Jesus right now? What is he doing right now? Why is he doing it? He rules all things for the church. That's what Ephesians tells us. He rules the course of history for our good. One of the greatest goals God has is to do good to his church. And so he causes his king, Jesus, to ascend to a place of authority so that this king will do good for his church. And so, friends, whatever the hardships that you might be enduring right now, whatever the discouragements you may be facing, the disappointments you may be bearing, let me encourage you, don't give up. Christ rules all things for the church. So what what global events cause you to tremble? Is it Russia, North Korea, Iran? Listen, friends, the nations will rage. The peoples will plot in vain. Kings of the earth will set themselves up against God and his people. Presidents may falter. Your kids, principal or superintendents, they may be foolish. You may have a Saul in your life even though you want a David. But Jesus is still on a throne, high and above all thrones. He still rules. He still presides. And he has never said, oops, didn't mean for that to happen. For Israel, God's providence and the big things meant a king like the nations. That's what they got. But for us today, God's providence in the big things means the provision of King Jesus whose kingdom is not of this world, whose rule is good. We can count on him. And so, friends, you can settle this in your hearts. You can rest in Jesus today because right now he has ascended to be king over the cosmos. Nothing is outside the scope of his care. Now, let me give you one significant and recent example of this. I never thought I would stand up here in my lifetime and be able to say this. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. We can applaud that. And I want you to listen to how Proverbs 21, verse 15 invites us to respond to this reality. Listen to this. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. It is a good thing. It is the right thing to celebrate what has occurred. It is absolutely good. The story of Friday, June 24th, 2022, isn't primarily about nine Supreme Court judges. It's not primarily about giving a voice to the voiceless and most vulnerable. It's not primarily about political maneuvering or evangelistic uh, triumph. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. I want you to hear me clearly. This is all about God. This is all about God overturning this edict and bringing just a little bit of his eschatological judgment to earth in this present age. This is about God working. This is about his kind providence in the big things here on earth. Psalm 103 verse 6, the Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all. 
And, and it's just nuts to think about the timing of this, right? It's almost like God orchestrated this right at the very end of Pride Month, as if he's saying to America, Jesus still reigns, not you. Life and mercy will prevail, not pride and sterility. God is still working in the big things. Praise him, right? So celebrate. And let me, let me just say a, another brief word celebrating this incredible uh, manifestation of biblical justice is so important, but so is some other things. This is just the beginning. This is not the end, right? And we have a lot of work to do. We want to be involved. We want to get involved in pregnancy centers. We want to be praying over pregnancy centers in particular. We want to be invested in adoption and foster care and so forth. This is going to create more opportunities for the people of God to dive in and invest. God's doing a big thing. He wants us to act and respond accordingly too, okay? So celebration is a part of this, but there's much more than just that. Okay, so our story continues as Samuel takes oil and pours it on Saul's head. You see this in chapter 10, verse 1. So here, finally, after all of these kind of subtle pointers and clues, Saul is anointed king. Uh, but the oddities continue in the story. Apparently, Saul needed some convincing. Put yourself in his shoes. He went looking for donkeys. Now some guy is pouring oil on his head. What in the world is happening, right? So Samuel gives him, notice, three signs. Imagine I invited you over to dinner, and I gave you food, and we had a good time together. At the end of the evening, I declared boldly, confidently, you will be the next president of the United States. You will not believe me. Maybe Godwin's going insane. And at the very least, you're going to want some evidence, right? And so for Saul, this office of king doesn't even exist. He has no memory of king within his people, the nation of Israel. So these signs are going to help him to believe, to trust in God, right? So the first sign, notice two men at Rachel's grave. Um, and there's that message of, hey, the donkeys are back. You know, your dad's not worried about the donkeys. He's worried about you. Okay. The second sign at Bethel, there's goats and bread and wine coming from three men, and, and they're going to give you two of those lo loaves. Okay. The third sign, the biggest sign of all, you're going to meet up with some prophets at Gibeah, and you will prophesy. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you. You will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. Okay, so there it is. And, and so did all of this stuff happen, all of these three signs? Yes, it did. Look at verse 9 with me. When Saul turned around to leave Samuel... God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. So God changes his heart, and by his Spirit, God was confirming, here's the guy. This is going to be the king. So through this strange set of circumstances, God sovereignly provides a king for Israel. But, <laughs> I mean, tracing kind of the narrative of Saul here is just so interesting to me. Uh, even though Saul was changed, he was still hiding. You notice that? When his uncle asked him about what Samuel says, what does Saul say to his uncle? Hey, the donkeys are back. We're good. Samuel fed me. We had a good meal. That's about it, right? Nothing about the biggest thing, which is his kingship. Why is Saul hiding? It's so odd, isn't it? Friends, God is doing big things among us as well. Nothing is ever coincidental. You know, Israel, they want a king. God's going to choose that king for them, and he's going to bring it about into, in, in some really strange ways. And that's what we're meant to see here. God is over all of this. And isn't this how life is? 
And you go looking for the remote controller. 30 minutes later, you're texting with an old friend about his marriage. You change your mind about which coffee shop you'll visit, and all of a sudden you have a random conversation that leads to a new job opportunity or a new friendship or an evangelistic conversation, right? Our, our days are filled with God doing big things among the normal things that feel often like coincidences because God is governing every moment. All right, let's move to our last point here, God's providence and the hard things. So as we put our eyes on this final section, it's tempting to just read our Bible's heading. So my Bible's heading says, Saul received as king. Okay, so Israel gets their king. He's publicly presented and all is well. Is that kind of what we're supposed to take from this? No, that's, that's actually, there's way more going on. It's, it's so important, once again, to look at the story details. Look with me at verse 17. I want you to watch the tone of the Lord through his prophet Samuel. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. You hear the tone there? Like this was not a good thing. This was happening because they rejected God as their king. And so God brings all of this about in his own way, right? Israel wanted a king like the nations. God says, okay, here you go. It's an act of discipline. So this is the hard thing that we see in this story. This king, Saul, is going to be an act of discipline from the Lord. When all the tribes gathered, notice uh, Samuel finally kind of calls Saul, you know, son of Kish, come take your throne and come before God's people. Where is he? You know, he's hiding among the luggage. Like he shows himself to be a coward at the very moment that he's supposed to step up into the kingship. He's finally dragged out and presented, hey, here's your king. He looks, you know, he looks great. God's going to make him their king. So all that's true. But we come to know through these chapters, Saul doesn't have the character, the quality that is fitting for God's king. And the people... Look at the end of verse 24. This is great. And all the people shouted after all this. All the people shouted, long live the king. I mean, it's humorous, right? The irony here. They just wanted to fit in. Here's our man. Sometimes our desires to fit in can cause tremendous blindness to what is plain, right? And people don't get it. They will get what God wants. And look how this whole episode kind of ends in verses 26 and 27. Some guys are with Saul, and there are others that are not with Saul. And so, friends, this is a, a little foreshadowing. From the moment the king is declared, the nation of Israel would be divided. As you trace the history of Israel all the way through for centuries, that is a true statement. They would be divided. Things would actually get worse for them under all of these different kings. And sure, there are moments of grace and glory and so forth, but this is a little foreshadowing. This is all God's discipline. I want to point out one more thing to you that I just think is so tremendous because in, in, in the midst of these two chapters, there's something really special that's going on. Even in discipline, God was merciful to Israel. So I want you to look back at chapter 9, verse 16, just for a moment. They wanted a king like the nations. God said, sure, here's Saul, the guy who can't find donkeys and hides 
behind the luggage. But then there's this verse. At this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. It's like a bright light in a very dark room, right? Even in judgment, we see God's mercy. God would use this king as unfit as he would be, and he would prove to be that. He would use Saul for good. He would defeat the Philistines. He would secure Israel's borders, at least for a time. Saul would be an instrument not only of God's justice and judgment, but of his mercy. It's kind of like one of those Twizzler ropes with two flavors. You know what I'm talking about? God kind of twists in his mercy into his disciplinary judgment. There's almost two layers to God's providence. On one level, God presides over the hard things. He's not surprised by them. In fact, he ordains them. But at another level, at the redemptive level, his mercy coexists. His mercy co-mingles with the hard things. They go hand in hand. This is why God's providence in this story and in our lives can sometimes feel so messy, right? It's hard to understand. And here's the incredible takeaway, and I want you to hear me now. Look at how patient God is with Israel. You see that? Look at how patient. I mean, it's stunning how patient he is, not only with Israel, but with the 21st century church, with you and with me. You know, we push God away, not just once or twice. Sometimes we push him away a dozen times in a given day. But for those who are in Christ, God cannot be resisted. He stays put, right? He settles in for the long haul. He's far more committed to you than you are to him. And his providence in the hard things includes these disciplinary, painful, uncomfortable pieces like we see here. But for his people, it's always redemptive. It's always mingled with mercy. And so the discipline is going to come, and maybe it's come for you right now or in, in this season of your life, and it's causing some pain. But right alongside that, oh, here comes his comfort. Here comes his mercy. William Cooper, one of my favorite hymns, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's a great hymn that corresponds to the truths we see in these chapters. I've shared this before with you. It's so good. He says this in, in a stanza. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a small, uh, smiling face. How true is that? How many times in your life and my life have we experienced this, right? The, the pain of a bad king that we've chosen, the pain of our sin, the pain of harsh circumstances. But through it all, somehow God is working. He's teaching. He's shaping us into the image of Christ. Somehow that's true. God's disciplinary judgment mingled in with his redemptive mercy. So as we look at these chapters, we see God's incredible providence in providing this king for Israel. He provides a king, but it just feels so strange, right? It doesn't feel like this is like the aha moment that you want, because this king is rather goofy, and he's a little odd. He's the king they want, but he's not the king they need. And so it leaves us wanting for something more, for Israel, but also for us. God's people, indeed, they do need a king, but not someone who would build a kingdom like the world's. Not a king who hides, but a king who takes up the mantle of leadership, even when it costs him something. 
Not a king who is stellar in the world's eyes, but a king who can rule God's people well. We need a king who, when sent by his father to find that which is lost, he's able to do the job. And friends, we have this king in Jesus, don't we? Jesus is everything that Saul is not. And as we open up the pages of the Gospels, as we peruse the life of Jesus, what do we see? We see once again God's incredible providence over the small things and over the big things and over the hard things. We see Jesus at wedding feasts. We see Jesus among the donkeys. We see him performing spectacular miracles among the peoples to establish his authority and preview his kingdom. And we see Jesus on a cross. The hardest of all things, but the one thing which God would then turn for the greatest good. And so when we then come to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we read Paul's words, all things work out for the good. We can actually trust it in the midst of our weary days, right? It all worked out for the good for Israel. It all worked out for the good for Jesus and through Jesus. It will all work out for the good for you and for me. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.